right. Thank you very much. If we would turn to Acts chapter 5. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians. This week we're in Acts. Next week we'll be in Daniel and then Revelation. Daniel 6, I think it is, next week. So we're working our way through these books. And today in the rotation we're back in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the uh, rest of Acts chapter 5. We looked at the first part already. And we'll look at verses 17 and following uh, today as we worship the Lord and and seek to listen to what he has to say to us. Um, One of the things that comes through reading the Bible and even just looking at our lives and listening to the news is that truth matters. It really does. It matters what the truth is. If someone were to run in here and shout fire, it would matter whether or not we thought that was a true description of what was going on or a false description. If we thought that they were lying, we wouldn't respond, or at least we would respond in a way that they weren't intending for us to respond. But if we thought that it was true or maybe it could be true, then we would respond in a different way. And so our response to life and our response to people and our response to uh, all kinds of things is really based on what we think is true. That definitely uh, leads us in terms of our response. And so um, trying to determine uh, what to do about Ukraine depends on what we really believe is going on in Ukraine. Uh, In terms of our response to what's going on in our own country, Depends on what we think is true about what's going on in our own country. When we think about what's going on in our own own families or in our own hearts and lives, what we do or how we respond is very much based on what we think is true about what's going on in our families and in our hearts and in our lives. And so I want to just keep reminding you of this very simple summary that is meant to just remind us of some, some things. Obviously, the Bible tells us that the truth is there is a God and that he is the supreme good, which means every other good ultimately points to him and there is no good apart from him. Uh, The truth is man is an idol worshiper, which means we naturally do not look at God as being the supreme good. We do not naturally and automatically go to God for the good that we need or the good that we long for. Jesus is the double cure means that the consequences of rejecting God are only solved by God and God himself in the person of Jesus coming to live the life we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die and then rising from the dead and offering us mercy. And the truth is God calls us to trust in what he promises us, so that we're saved not by our works, but by simply trusting in what he's promised us based on what Jesus has done for us. And then the evidence that we are really trusting in what God has provided for us in Jesus is that we seek to live that out in terms of loving people in the way that God calls us to love them. And so it makes a difference whether or not these things are true, whether or not God is really the supreme good the only one who can satisfy my soul, whether or not I really am, my biggest problem is really that I don't look to God for what I need and that Jesus really is the Lord and Savior of all. If those things are true, it shapes everything about life. If that's not true, then we should get up and walk out right now because that's what we're encouraging each other to believe is that those things are true and they call us to trust God in light of those things and to love people in light of those things. And so it matters whether or not uh, what the Bible says is true is true. Well, today we want to think about what Acts chapter 5 has to say to us because not only does truth matter, but because truth matters, lies matter. Things that are not true matter. Because if truth uh, shapes our response to life and our response to God, then lies also shape our response to life and our response to God. And so it matters whether or not 2 plus 2 is 4 or 2 plus 2 is 5. 
It matters what is true and what is not true. Jesus said in John 8, which is actually the theme verse for our homeschool, um, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. When Jesus says, if, if uh, you continue in my word, he's saying, um, in terms of truth, you have to determine who you're going to listen to and why. Because we all have an authority that we're listening to in terms of determining what the truth is. It may be our own opinion, it may be another man's opinion, or it may be what God says in the Bible. But we all have an authority that we're listening to and we're looking to, and we have to have a solid basis for believing that we ought to listen to this authority to tell us what is true. And Jesus says, my word is truth. And so if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free which implies that we are not free. Not free to what? We're not free to love God. We're not free to love others. But we will be set free to love God and set free to love others when we're delivered from lies about God and lies about ourselves and and lies about others. The truth sets us free. And that's why truth is important because um, it does set us free to Love. There, there are all kinds of things that, that churches can get involved in in various ways and can become primary in churches and in Christians. And all of us are prone to go in the wrong direction in, in all kinds of ways. Some churches and some even Christians, pastors or whatever can be focused on big. You know, we want to be big. We want to have numbers. We want to be successful. Uh, sometimes churches get concerned with being good. You know, we want to do things for people and help to make their life better. Some churches want to be relevant. We, want to, we don't want to clash with the culture around us. We want to fit in with the, the culture. Some churches want to be right. We want to have right doctrine. The Bible says we need to be light, not just right. Now, what's the difference between being right and light? Light is for the purpose of seeing the truth so you will love God and love others. Being right, just to be right, is no um, virtue. That was the church in Ephesus. They were concerned about being right, but Jesus said, you've left your first love. Your desire to be right about the truth is not moving you to love God and love others like you should. So the Bible calls us to be light in light of verses like 1 Timothy 3, where Paul said that the church is the household of God, the pillar in support of the truth. And so truth is vital to what we are about as Christians and as a church, but not in and of itself, just so we can go around saying, I've got the truth and you don't, or I'm right and you're wrong, but so we can love God and love others as we should. And so... um, Regardless of what is going on in our lives and in our country, the issue is the truth. And that's why there's a lot of talk in our country these days about um, what is happening in our country. And um, talk about um, how books in the past have described some of the things that people are beginning to see in our culture, whether it's Animal Farm or 1984 or Brave New World. Well, the book 1984 is a book um, written by George Orwell, who commented in 1939, and I think he was talking a lot, or beginning to talk a lot about what was going on in Nazi Germany during that time. He said, it is quite possible that we are descending into an age in which two plus two will make five when the leader says so, meaning that they were seeing during World War II Uh, propaganda that was meant to shape people's attitudes, shape people's lives. It wasn't the truth, but it was proclaimed to be the truth. And why would would a totalitarian government be so concerned about communication? It's because what we believe to be true shapes our lives. It's a matter of control. So if they can shape people's 
response to them and to life uh, by communicating communicating a certain truth, and that's what they do. Isn't that what happened in Genesis 3? Uh, What entered into the garden uh, through Satan in the form of a serpent? A lie entered into the garden. God isn't what he says he is, and he's keeping from you what you really need and desire. It was a lie that brought the destruction of paradise. It will be the truth that actually ushers us into paradise again. Uh, Actually, I mentioned the Nazis. One of the uh, Nazi leaders actually said at one point, if the Fuhrer, meaning Hitler, wants it, two and two makes five. In the book, 1984, the protagonist, uh, Winston, hero of the story, says freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four. Freedom is the freedom to speak the truth. That's what freedom really is. And so I say all of that just as a way of prepping us for what we find in Acts chapter 5 because um, there's always the threat of a false narrative of falsehood that's trying to shape us in various ways. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Um, Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so we just have to remember that we live in a world that entered into the condition it's in through a lie. Satan comes into the garden, he lies, the lie is believed, Adam and Eve fall, and they were enslaved as a result of a lie. And the only way we can be set free is by seeing the truth, believing the truth, and beginning to live in light of that truth. And so what's been happening in the book of Acts is that the Lord Jesus has lived, died, rose again, gone back to heaven. Before he went back to heaven, he told his church that they were to be his witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the truth. Uh, That they were to tell the truth about him, about what he did, about God, and about all that they saw. They saw the risen Christ. They were to be witnesses to the truth. And yet, just like the religious leaders were not happy about Jesus' testimony to the truth. They also weren't very happy about the disciples and the apostles' testimony to the truth. Um, Let me read for us just the first part of uh, verses um, 17 through 25, and we'll go from there, because what we see initially is that uh, God calls all of us to do what the apostles were doing, which is to, to hear the truth, believe the truth, Uh, live out the truth and testify to it. In verse 17, it says in Acts chapter 5, But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So, Uh, We have at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we have the situation with Ananias and Sapphira who lie about um, the price that they sold their property for. God takes their lives and uh, the 
the apostles continue preaching and teaching Jesus and people are being healed and the the crowds are watching all this and they're big, they admire uh, the apostles and the church, even though they're not sure they want to be a part of what's going on. And the religious leaders are jealous. They're angry that they're not getting the attention and the, and the applause uh, that the apostles are getting. And so they throw them in jail. And God decides to reverse that decision. And he sends an angel to get them out of jail. One of the things that we um, probably don't live with as much uh, is a consciousness of the reality of angels. And we actually had this conversation not too long in our home about whether or not we all have a personal angel and how many there might be and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, There's a great story. Uh, Jan really uh, enjoys Darlene Rose and her testimony. She was a missionary in Papua New Guinea uh, during World War II, suffered in... Uh, a camp uh, under the Japanese, uh, but before that happened, she was in this situation living in this house where they had a real rat problem, and so they were always fighting these rats, and one night she woke up and she heard this uh, sound in the house, and she thought, oh, the rats are here again, and she woke up uh, one of the other ladies and said, come on, let's go, and we got to get those rats out of the house, and she walked out of the door of her bedroom and came face to face with a bandit from the local village who had a machete, pulled it on her. And for some reason, she said, I just rushed at him, being the coward that I am. I don't know what I was doing. And he turned around and he fled out of the house. And as she got outside the house, she realized that there were a lot of other uh, guys there too. And they ran off into the jungle. And she realized um, what a stupid thing that she had just done. And she said, Lord, what a stupid thing I've just done. And uh, the verse that came to her mind was Psalm 34, 7, which says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Uh, According to her testimony, I don't know that she thought much more about that, but after the war, she actually talked to the man that she uh, figured was behind all of that, which was the gardener. And she actually came right out and asked him about why they never came back to the house, because even though... Uh, after that night, they were prepared. They got ready, but they never came back. And the gardener said, after the war, the reason why we never came back is because of those people. She said, what people? Those people in white that were standing all around your house. We didn't come back. And that's when she knew that what the Lord was saying to her from Psalm 34, 7 is that I'm going to protect you and I have protected you. My angels are around your house. And so that's what we see happening here is God sent his angels to release the apostles. Uh, Calvin would say the angels are ministers of God's goodness toward us. They are heavenly spirits who watch over us for our safety. And he says they are no small pledge of God's love to us. Is that he has ordained that his angels take care of his people. And that's what we see happening in this passage. And the reason why God is giving them this miraculous help is not so that they can just go and do whatever they want to do, but so that they can go and speak the truth. And so the angel releases them and tells them to continue preaching and teaching. And so at daylight they show up and they do just that. Uh, They continue to teach what the Bible says in verse 20, the whole message of this life. What does that mean? It's the truth about life. It's all the truth about life. It's the truth about God. It's the truth about man. It's the truth about Jesus and how we need to trust and how we need to love in light of what God has done for us. And so the reality is we need help, whether it's the help of angels or the help of God's grace. We need help to do what God calls us to do because God does calls, uh, excuse me, call all of us to be witnesses to the truth with our lives and with our lips in our workplace, in our families, uh, everywhere we go. And we can see what happened here in this section as an answered prayer in light of what it says at the end of Acts chapter 4 when It says in verse 29 that they prayed, Now, Lord, take note of their threats. 
and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, which means God uh, is glad to answer our prayer for help to speak the truth with boldness. All of us need boldness, especially when there's some threat. Whether this is the threat of just being rejected or the threat of losing our job or the threat of anything else that might be. We need grace to be bold to speak the truth in love. And God will give us that grace in various ways. He will give us that help in various ways. Because um, God has commissioned the church through Jesus to make disciples. He's commissioned the church to do it, which means all of us play different roles in disciple making. But all of us, whatever role we might play, are to be witnesses to the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. And God uses the communication of our lips. Sometimes people will quote, I think, Francis of Assisi, who said, um, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Uh, the reality is that's not true. Uh, the reality is... Um, and I think maybe he was trying to say our lives are important, which we we should affirm. Yes, our lives are important, but we've been given a message. And you can be misunderstood about why you're good. You can be good. You can be righteous. You can be obedient. And people can misunderstand why you're doing it. So you have to put words to it. You have to share the gospel about why you're living the way you're living, and that's why we're called to be witnesses with, with our words, and we are to back it up with our lives. There's no doubt about that. And so what we see initially is we need, if we're going to suffer gladly and spreading the true narrative, we talked last week about suffering gladly in messy relationships. Well, our relationship with unbelievers is a messy relationship too. And God calls us to be willing to suffer to love those who don't know Christ by telling them the the truth and recognize that you can't love like God loves and not suffer. That's just part of loving because it is hard because there is a clash of narratives and we don't naturally want to hear the truth. We naturally want something different than the truth. And so all of that makes it hard and we need God's help to speak the truth in love. In the next section of verses, uh, therefore we need to also have, you can see, resolve in verses 26 through 32. We need to be resolved uh, to do that. In verse 26 it says, then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we have the the captain and the officers of the temple. On behalf of the religious leaders, they arrest uh, the apostles again and bring them before this group of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And... The religious leaders tell the apostles, we told you not to do the very thing you're doing. We told you to stop this narrative, this narrative of Jesus being the Savior, and not only being the Savior, telling people that we killed him. We don't want you telling people that narrative. People may not like us (laughs) if you keep on telling that narrative. They were afraid they're going to be stoned. They knew that there was uh, a crowd that kind of liked what was going on with the Christians. And so they're very aware of popular opinion. 
And so they basically say, you're hurting our opinion polls. You're telling people that, that not only did Jesus die, but he died because we killed him, and we killed him unjustly, and that he rose from the dead, and now he's Lord of all. That's a narrative we don't want spread. It's a narrative that's contrary to our narrative because we've been telling people that the disciples stole his body and that he wasn't really the Lord and Savior that he claimed to be. And Peter, speaking for the apostles, said, we are resolved to do what God has told us to do. We must obey God rather than men. And why is that? Why were they so resolved? Because the truth is, Jesus raised, excuse me, God raised Jesus from the dead. The truth is, you did put him to death. We're just speaking the truth. We're not changing the true narrative. We may be attacking the false narrative, but we're not attacking the true narrative. And this Jesus is a prince and a savior. What does that mean? That means he's Lord and savior. And that means not only should we obey what he says. You religious leaders ought to be obeying what he says. But he also says that he is a prince and a savior, which means, you know what? You put him to death, but you could still be saved by the very one you put to death because he's a savior for sinners. There was good news, even in what Peter was telling the religious leaders, that you put him to death. You need to know the truth. You need to speak the truth. You need to be convicted of the truth, but also be convicted of the good news, that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners, even those who drove the nails into his hands. He is an able and willing Savior. And he said, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit a witness of those things? Through their witness. How does the Holy Spirit speak to people? Through you and me. Obviously through his word. If people are reading his word, then he speaks through his word. But he also speaks through his people as we bear witness to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness in us and through us to them as well. Um, But the reality is, why do you need great resolve? We need great help. We need great resolve. Why, why is that? John Bunyan was thrown into jail, too, for preaching the truth. And he spent many, many years in prison. And one of the hardest things about that was he had a blind daughter that he was afraid was going to suffer greatly and maybe even starve in various ways because he wasn't there to provide for his family. So he suffered while he was in prison, but he would not compromise with regard to the truth. And he uses a picture as he describes the the Christian life. He pictures it as being on a boat in a storm. And he says this, as if Jesus was speaking, uh, following me is not like following some other masters. The wind sits always on my face and the foaming rage of the sea of this world and the proud and lofty waves thereof do continually beat upon the sides of the bark or ship that myself, my cause, and my followers are in. He, therefore, that will not run hazards and that is afraid to venture a drowning, let him not set foot into this vessel. So he's basically saying that when you get into the ark, and, and Jesus is pictured as the ark that rescues us from the wrath of God, just like in the time of Noah. Jesus is the ark, so to speak. But if you get in the ark by trusting Jesus, don't be surprised if the wind is always in your face. Don't be surprised if you're receiving much, much pressure to walk away and to um, not trust in Jesus and not speak for Jesus and not follow Jesus. The wind will be in your face, and the rage of the sea will be against you in this world. And what he's saying is, that is the Christian life. And we have to embrace that. And that's why Jesus could say, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because that is the reality of the world in which we live. And so we need great resolve, just like, In the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
the king, Nebuchadnezzar, says, if you don't worship my statue, I'm going to throw you into a furnace of fire. And they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods. We are resolved to trust our God, to speak for our God, Whatever comes our way, even the fiery furnace, we are resolved. Now, it takes great help. It takes grace to actually live that out. None of us have those kinds of resources in ourselves. None of us are that brave in ourselves. But by God's grace, we can be resolved and we can speak and live no matter what the cost for the sake of the truth. Well, It goes on from there in verses 33 through 39 to talk about conviction. And and the idea of being resolved in conviction is is, uh, closely related. So let me just read for us verses 33 through 39, where it says in verse 33, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Peter preach the good news to these religious leaders. Even though he was being arrested by them, even though he could have said, you know what, they're not going to listen to me. They're hostile. Um, They're hardened. He still spoke the truth about Jesus, that he is a prince and a savior, that you put him to death, but he has been given to Israel, which includes you, to be granted repentance and to be granted forgiveness. And in the face of that, it says they were cut to the quick, which is another way of saying they were convicted. But it didn't result in them repenting. It resulted in them wanting to kill them and intending to kill them, purposing to kill them. And when that became apparent, a man named Gamaliel, who was a respected teacher, rabbi, stood up and said, hang on, guys, uh, you shouldn't do what you're about to do. And he began to use some illustrations saying, you know what, there's a guy named Thutis, and people began following him, but then he died, and they all stopped following him. Then there was this other guy who also did the same kind of thing, and then he died, and they all stopped following him. And so this Jesus is supposed to be dead, and these guys will eventually just stop following him unless there's something going on here, unless that God is in it. And so he says, you guys need to be careful of fighting against God because it makes you wonder if Gamaliel began to think, okay, Thutis arose, got a following, but then he died and it immediately dissipated. Same thing with this other guy. But this guy, Jesus, he died, and his followers haven't dissipated. They've actually grown. What's going on here? It's a little different. It's a different scenario here. Maybe there's something going on here. And he cautions them that they not be hasty. Well, one of the great testimonies, not the only one, but one of the great testimonies to the truthfulness of the gospel that the church proclaims is the fact that the church has survived the death of Jesus. 
that when he died, everything didn't just fall apart, it actually grew. And the church has survived all kinds of persecution, all kinds of opposition. You say, well, aren't there other religions that have also survived over the course of time? True, but they haven't survived the same kind of attack and opposition and um, attempts to squash them out. And so there's a testimony to that in uh, what we see happening in the book of Acts as well as throughout history. It's sort of the same thing as what we've highlighted before with the account of Polycarp. The death of Polycarp is one of those martyrdoms in which um, those who saw it wrote about it. And Polycarp was someone who actually was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so obviously he was somebody that was held in great esteem in the early church because of his relationship to one of the, uh, presumably the last living apostle, John. And if you might recall, remember Polycarp uh, has a dream. And in this dream, his pillow catches on fire. And he wakes up from the dream and he tells those, uh, his friends, that he's going to die by being burned to death. And so some other friends are tortured and they uh, reveal where he is and the authorities catch him. They bring him into the stadium and they try to get him to um, recant his faith in Christ. They threaten him with wild animals. They threaten him with fire. And he says, you know, um, 86 years I have served Jesus and he has done me no wrong How can I blaspheme my king and my savior or my prince and my savior? How can I speak ill of him? And uh, when they threatened him with fire, he said, uh, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Maybe that's where we get the phrase, bring it on. I don't know. But he was ready because he believed that God had told him how he was going to die. Therefore, he believed that God would give him the grace for what he was going to go through. And so they tie his hands behind his back and they light the fire beneath him. And according to the account, the fire enveloped him like this. It was all around him, but it wasn't burning his body, according to the account. And so they told one of the soldiers, stab him, and they stabbed him. And according to the account, blood came out and put out the fire. Ultimately, he was burned and died as best we understand how it played out. But what he did was he was faithful to the truth to the very end. Why? He was convinced of the truth. He was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And he was convinced that Jesus would do what he said he would do. That if he died, even in the most difficult of ways, that Jesus was going to take him to heaven and was going to reward him greatly for eternity in light of his faithfulness. And so we see that he was a man who had great, great conviction. So when we think about suffering gladly, and that's what we're talking about, how can I suffer gladly? Which doesn't mean I'm glad about the suffering, but that I can actually do what the last part of this chapter talks about, rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Obviously, it takes great help to be able to do that. It takes great resolve. It takes great conviction that will lead us and enable us to be able to do what we see happening in um, this latter part of the passage. Ultimately, we have to be like Job in terms of our conviction. When it got to the very end, Job went through all kinds of suffering. But in the end, he said that uh, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Meaning, God has taken me through some very, very difficult things, but he's done it for wonderful reasons. How does a person like Polycarp 
face being burned alive. You have to have the conviction that the God who's in charge of everything has a wonderful plan and purpose and good things to bring out of it for you and for others as well. That there are things going on that appear to be horrible, just like the cross of Jesus, but are actually glorious and wonderful. And so God calls us to suffer like Jesus did. Bearing our cross looks horrible, difficult, something that no one would want to go through, and yet God is up to wonderful things through our suffering, just like he was in the suffering of Jesus. And those kinds of convictions allowed the apostles to do what they did. And if you look at the very last part of the chapter in verse 40 through 42, it says they took his advice, which, which means they didn't kill them. doesn't mean they didn't do anything to them. It says they took it, his advice, speaking of Gamaliel, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So it says they didn't kill them like they intended to because they said, okay, maybe Gamaliel has a point, uh, so we'll respect this leader and we won't kill them, but we'll make them wish they were dead. And so they flogged them, they beat them. Some believe that it was using the whip uh, like Jesus experienced before he was crucified, which was a terrible experience um, that could actually kill you uh, in many cases. It wasn't just a slap on the wrist. Uh, They were beat um, in a significant way is the implication. And then they ordered them not to... Speak in the name of Jesus. The first time, they just said, don't speak in the name of Jesus. They didn't do anything to them. Now they brought added pressure, added pain and suffering, said, again, we tell you, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Don't speak the truth, is what they would have heard. And then it says that they released them. And it says they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Which... More literally, it could have been rendered, they were uh, worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name, or they were, they were honored to be dishonored on behalf of Jesus. They were honored to be dishonored. Um, what does that mean? Does it mean when it says they were worthy? Was it sort of like a, a stamp of approval where God says, you guys are really great guys, and it's because you, were, you suffered for me, it shows me what a great guy you are. Well, we know that uh, nobody suffers like that apart from God's grace. And like um, Augustine and others have said, God crowns his own grace. He rewards his own grace. And so I believe uh, the best way to understand what it means to say that they uh, considered themselves worthy to suffer shame for his name was they found joy in seeing that they had the grace to suffer shame for his name. Why? What had they done before? Well, Peter had denied him three times. The other disciples had run away. This time they didn't deny him and they didn't run away. And they rejoiced. There was grace to suffer shame for his name. It's like Matthew Henry said, if we suffer ill for doing well, provided we suffer it well, we ought to rejoice in that grace which enables us so to do. They rejoice in the grace of God that enabled them to bear dishonor for the honor of Christ and to hold on to the truth and not let it go. And that joy is important Just like it says in Nehemiah 8, uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is important when there's opposition all around. And that joy comes from great help, great resolve, 
and great conviction about what the truth is. Well, let me wrap up here. God has given us in his word what we need for what we're going through. And God gave the believers in the first century what they needed. They were seeing um, increasing persecution in their day and time. And so they needed encouragement. They needed the confirmation that the truth that they believed was really true. And God confirmed that in miraculous ways. They needed to know that opposition was to be expected, that it was the rule rather than the exception. And they needed to see examples of people going through persecution and God giving them grace not to run away, not to deny him, but to be faithful to the truth. They needed to see a testimony to the endurance of the church, even through the greatest of opposition. Calvin can say that what God has for us in the book of Acts is meant to remind us that we must always be ready for the combat. We need to be ready because there are false narratives, there are lies, there are people that feel threatened by the truth of Jesus and they will protect what threatens them. The religious leaders felt threatened by the, the apostles, by the truth of Jesus, and therefore they were willing to kill to protect it. The same way with all totalitarian governments. They're trying to protect something, their power, their prosperity, their prestige, and oftentimes they will kill to do so. Calvin himself talks about the religious leaders in this passage as spiritual tyrants. You have political tyrants, you also have spiritual tyrants who will do the very same thing. Well, let me encourage us uh, as we close um, to pray for grace, to bear witness to the truth with our lips and with our lives, no matter what the opposition. There's a film uh, called Two and Two. Uh, it was made back in 2011. It's an award-winning film, I believe, and it was actually based on the slogan from 1984, two plus two equals five, and uh, it was part of the propaganda that's being talked about in the book. And in that story, the short film, you've got a classroom of about 12 boys. I think the setting is supposed to be Iran. There's a chalkboard at the front. And at the beginning of the, the, the film, the boys are just talking. And then the teacher walks into the room, and they're all quiet. And they stand up. And the, uh, just, the teacher kind of looks at his watch. And all of a sudden, over the intercom comes a message that says, some things are changing in our school. Make sure you listen to your teacher and follow what he says. And so after that, um, the teacher walks up to the chalkboard. He writes 2 plus 2 equals Five, and there's a rumbling among the children, and he says, silence. Repeat after me, two plus two equals five, and they begin doing that. Two plus two equals five, and then one student stands up and says, excuse me, sir, but I thought two plus two was four. And he says, you don't need to think, you just need to repeat. And so the little boy uh, sits down, they continue, 2 plus 2 equals 5, and they're all repeating this, and another boy stands up and says, no, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And uh, the teacher walks toward him and says, who gave you permission to talk? And the little boy keeps saying, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Don't you see that? And he looks at his fellow students, 2 plus 2 equals 4, see? It equals 4. And uh, the teacher walks out of the room and he brings in three senior students and says, these are uh, some of our best students. Uh, What is two plus two? And all in unison they say, two plus two is five. And so he walks up to the board and he erases the five where it says two plus two. And he brings the little boy up front who keeps saying it's four. And he says, I'm gonna give you one more chance. I want you to uh, finish the equation. Two plus two equals five. So he gives him the piece of chalk. The little boy takes the piece of chalk and looks into the eyes of his teacher for a moment. Then he looks at the chalkboard and he slowly and carefully writes four. And in the movie, um, the three 
senior um, students um, appear to be pointing guns and they take the little boy's life. And the two plus two equals four, part of it is covered, or the answer of four is actually covered with some blood. They take him out. The three older students take out the little boy, and the teacher continues. Write in your book, 2 plus 2 equals 5. And they keep repeating it as it's being written in their books, and then the last part of the scene is one boy on the back row writes 2 plus 2 equals 5, thinks about it a minute, then he crosses out the 5, and he writes 4. And that's how the movie ends. I tell that story to say that that is the choice all of us have to make on some level. We might not have to give our lives, but we will have to die to something. Maybe a relationship, um, maybe a job. We'll have to die to something to speak the truth, to hold on to the truth. Um, We're going to be pressured uh, to say things that aren't true with our lives and with our lips. And God calls us to think and to reject people who say, don't think, just do, just repeat. No, we need to think. We need to think hard about what the Bible says. We need to think hard about what our authority is for truth and why we believe that authority. And we need to believe the truth and obey the truth because truth matters. It is a life and death issue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. Indeed, as Paul says later on in the book of Acts, we speak sober words of truth. The truth is sobering in all kinds of ways in light of our need for a Savior. It's also sobering in in a world in which um, the truth is not welcomed and can be costly. But Father, help us all to be concerned about the truth, knowing it, believing it, living in light of it, and speaking it in love for the sake of love for you and love for others and, and love for our own um, souls and, and the good of our own souls in loving you and loving others. So we pray that you'd help us. We, you've given us the book of Acts to encourage us not to be discouraged in the face of opposition to the truth, to not be deceived by false narratives. So please help us to see in our own relationships, our own circumstances, our own lives, how it applies and how we need to seek the truth and believe the truth and live the truth and speak the truth out of love, for love. Father, please prepare us to celebrate the truth in the Lord's Supper even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.